my name is Vanessa Richardson, and um, my day job is I'm a business writer. My maybe soon-to-be day job is as executive director of California Groundbreakers, and what I'm calling it is is a civic engagement um, organization filing for nonprofit. But the goal is really sh uh, a short one. It's to highlight cool people doing cool, innovative things uh, locally, regionally, and in California, and have them come and talk about what they're doing at cool venues like this. And it can be anything from uh, the arts, which is the first event that I put together in June. Um, and we held it at Beatnik Studios uh, in downtown, so it was great. Or we can do it here at the barn and talk about beer and have this great view. So that's the goal. And just quickly about me, I, I grew up here. Um, I grew up in Carmichael, and then I left at 18 saying, I'm never coming back. This place is a cow town. I, oh, it's so boring. And then I moved back last year. Um, and it's a very cool place. I mean, the barn is amazing. Midtown has changed so much, and I think you, you guys all know that. So it's interesting to me when I moved back here, there's people who never left, and they always believed in what was going on. There's people who, like me, came and moved back because they're like, wow, this town has really changed, and um, I'm, I'm here to stay. And then there's people who are moving here from all over the place, you know, Bay Area, SoCal, out of state, out of country. And uh, they're like, wow, Sacramento's really cool. So when I was talking with these people who are new to town, you know, they want to, like, I, I really like this place. I don't know anyone. I'm trying to get to know where people are and what's going on and get engaged. So that's the goal is um, kind of come to this kind of event and find out what's going on locally or regionally and also, you know, get engaged, be a volunteer or you work for a business that might help one of the panelists or um, there's some way that you can find out what's going on and then get more in, engaged and involved in the community around you and also find out what's happening that's going to affect you as a resident, as a taxpayer, as a consumer, because there's a lot coming out of California, you know, tech, ag, um, farm to fork that, you know, you, you see around you every day and it affects you. So um, I'm having a whole series of events, actually. This is just the second of many. Um, so just quickly, uh, I do have a website. It's californiagroundbreakers.org, and it's being revamped tomorrow actually a new one um, so there's I'm gonna put the events but just quickly uh, we have this one next week the barn uh, courtesy of them they gave me three dates so the next one is same same place same day probably a little later because I'm learning that maybe with traffic it's it's better to have it a little later but we're gonna do a, another pop-up panel like this on the waterfront and just quickly it's like by the we're by the river and it's beautiful and then some people are like, well, where's the uh, kayak launch? Where's the, um, where's, what's going on beyond the barn? Is Old Sac the only thing that I can take advantage of in Sacramento? Are there plans to do more? I mean, there's the bridges. Uh, I know, Mayor, I'm getting someone from West Sac to come and talk about it, but what's in store for the riverfront on both sides? Because I think there's a lot of hopes and dreams and efforts and again, it's gonna affect us. And so I just think that's a great panel and I'm gonna start promoting that, it's next Thursday. Also here at the barn on October 20th, that's a Thursday next month, um, we're doing something on affordable housing or as my advisory council decided to title it, why the hell are rents so high? Because I think you all hear about 
how we have the low, very low inventory, some of the highest rent increases, the housing market's crazy. Can we afford to live in Midtown? Can I afford to live in Midtown or even Tahoe Park where I live now? I mean, what's going to happen? So we're going to put a panel together on that. So I'm going to put out the, the information about that. Um, before those two dates, actually before October 20th, um, I did want to mention there's a series of events that I'm calling Policy in a Pint. So it's related to beer, but it's also related to the policy that's coming out of the Capitol. Um, you know, we're the, we're the capital, and there's so much that's going on that we may read in the B, but may not know more about. So my goal is to have you guys find out what's going on as a taxpayer, as a resident, and get the people who make those decisions or enact the legislation to talk about what they're doing and how it may affect you. Over beers or in some place in an informal, um, unstructured place uh, so that it's a little more relaxed and you can unwind. So... I have a series of policy and pints that are really going to be focusing on the ballot initiatives that we're going to be voting on, state and local. And uh, J.E., and I, sh I should have asked, is it Paino? Because I want to say Paino, you know, but... Okay, so J.E. has um, graciously offered Restaller as the place to have a lot of these events. Um, so I'm starting with actually Prop 53, which is the school bonds, which you think that school bonds is, oh, slam dunk, right? But no, there's actually a lot of... Um, backstory to that proposition, and it may make you think twice about voting. So that's the goal for Policy in a Pint. Uh, I also want to just mention this because I just feel it's always good to ask. I'd like to get a panel together on downtown Sacramento and the arena, and how the arena is going to affect downtown. They say it's going to you know, do this and that. Is that true? Will it? I just walk by and think 17,000 seats, where is everyone going to park? Um, so what, what is the future of downtown Sacramento with the arena in it and going forward? So I did want to ask if anyone's got an in with the Kings or Golden One Arena, because I'd love to have it there. Please let me know. I'm knocking in every door, but it never hurts to ask, right? So that's it for events. I just wanted to give special thanks to people that helped me put this together, because of course it's one person, but a whole bunch of people behind them. So first I wanted to thank the barn, Fulcrum Properties, a special thanks to Stephen Jaycox, and also for attending, and Renee Ong. I wanted to thank the brewers who are serving the beer and donating it. Thank you so much to Sidwork, Rustaller Device, and Crooked Lane. I also want to thank our caterer, Silvana Mislang, and I'm, is it Liliana? Let's, well, Roaming Spoon, thanks for coming out and providing great food. Thumbs up. Um, I wanted to thank my advisory council, my group of friends, and um, cohorts that have helped me help me you know get the ideas together and panels and so forth so in alphabetical order rich beckermeyer scott eggert mary McCune, Kara poley jennifer rindall rachel smith and last but not least stephanie sharp who's also going to be recording for a podcast because this is going to live on actually i don't know if i told you guys it's going to live on online and then special thanks also to caleb clark who's doing our sound uh, Kayla Doherty of Soul Collective, who's doing my website. Glenda Espinal, who's helping us. She, she sold you your tickets. Ray Mancini, who designed my new logo. Clay Nutting, who uh, is my fiscal sponsor for getting the liquor license and all this put together. And then, of course, my parents for giving me a little money to put this on. Last but not least, the panelists. I want to say special thank you for coming out. You took a chance on me. And then also to you guys, the audience, for coming because... You don't know me, but hopefully you'll get to know me more and I'll get to know you more. So 
With that being said, a few more people came and we can get started. I just wanted to quickly say the kind of the format for this panel and typically how it works is I'm going to ask questions to the panelists for, I don't know, 45 minutes. Sometimes time goes really fast. Sometimes it drags. Um, but 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then here's our mic because then the mic is going to go to you guys to ask questions because I'm sure there's a lot that we haven't we won't be able to cover that you will want to know about. So you'll get to ask the question at the mic, probably half an hour. So we have um, we have another hour and a half tops, and then there's more beer, and the sun will go down. So I think we have until 8 or maybe more. But in any case, uh, that's it. So with all the talk, I'm going to let the panelists talk. And I wanted to go in order to, you know, down the line and ask you guys to introduce yourselves, say what your names are, um, what you do, how briefly you got into beer, what made you think, I want to make a living out of this. And then I just always think it's interesting to see what is the best beer you've ever tasted, uh, ever, or maybe just last week. And it doesn't have to be one of yours. I just have to say that. So let's start with the Pope of Foam, or Mr. Beer. Thank you. Um, I'm Charlie Bamforth. So I am the professor of brewing science at uh, UC Davis. Go Aggies, yes. Um, I joined the brewing industry 38 years ago, before most of you were alive. So if anybody's gun, got a gun, please. This is a good time. Um, and I, I joined the brewing industry through pu pure accident. Um, I studied biochemistry at university and uh, as an enzymologist and the first job that became available happened to be in the brewing industry. So it's a pure accident and I've been here ever since. Um, so I teach people how to brew beer and I, I try to celebrate beer and try to promote beer and do research on beer and, um, and hopefully um, encourage people to treat it with uh, respect, moderation, admiration and all of those very good things. Um, and um, I think you said what was the best beer? You best know, I beer never ever. I never ever answered Best that beer question. this past week. I never answered that question either uh, because I've got so many wonderful friends. I've just. The, the most recent beer you've the had. The most recent beer I had was from this charming lady here, which is a rye <laughs> IPA, and it was absolutely beautiful. And I've, I've drunk a lot of device, and I've always enjoyed. Uh, Jay Payne's Roostaller because I helped him in the early days as well. And Tom, uh, he doesn't make any beer, so I don't enjoy his beer. My name is Teresa Pasuti. I've been in the brewing industry for all of five minutes. I'm just kidding. Our brewery opened about a two and a half weeks ago, so it's been a very exciting couple of weeks for us. Um, I've been a home brewer for a few years. I had a career in biotech, and then I had a career as a stay-at-home mom, and this is my third career. Um, I'm a chemist by training, um, love the art of brewing beer, um, and I think my favorite beer, or the one that was very magical for me, was uh, Celebrator, which is a, a Doppelbach, which comes with its own little goat on the collar, and somehow that made that very special for me, so. My name is Ken Anthony, and I am the owner of Device Brewing. Um, 
I'm a structural engineer. Um, well, not anymore, but I'm still registered. Um, do a lot of engineering around the brewery, so at least it didn't all go to waste. Uh, I got my education at UC San Diego, uh, bachelor's, master's. I uh, went to work designing bridges. And all the while down there in San Diego, I was homebrewing a lot. Uh, bought all my equipment and supplies at Homebrew Mart. And for those who don't know, that's otherwise known as Ballast Point. And uh, that's how it started there. Um, and uh, really, I got into it because, you know, as I sat in a cubicle every day designing bridges, which sounds cool, and I always tell people the coolest thing about designing bridges is going to a cocktail party and telling people you design bridges. <laughs> so I wanted to get out of it, and um, my wife and I decided uh, to move up here after our son was born, and we looked around, and really, back in 2011, there weren't uh, quite the, the vast number of breweries that we have now in Sacramento. And I said, you know what, we, we talked about doing this down in San Diego, and it was just way too much competition. And we said, let's, let's do this up here. So we did, and, uh, and here we are. So I uh, hope you guys have at least tried our beers once or twice. Device's best beer, or my? Uh, I don't know about that. It, we, whatever people like. Um, my favorite beer is the one in front of me. So right now it's a, right now it's a Crooked Lane Imperial Rye. Well, I'm Tom McCormick, and I haven't been in the industry quite as long as Charlie, but 35 years ago I was unemployed and living up in the hippie town of Nevada City and driving down the road, and there was someone pulled over to the side of the road before cell phones, and I pulled over to see if he needed any help. And uh, he was so grateful, he got in the car, I gave him a ride, and he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm nothing. And he said, well, I own a building in town, and I'm going to turn it into a brewery. So if you come on down to the brewery on Monday, I'll give you a job. And I did, and he did, and that's how I got into the, the beer industry 35 years ago. I've done a lot of different things in the industry, but I'm currently the executive director of the California Craft Brewers Association. I've been doing that for 11 years and it's the best job in the world. And don't tell these guys, or don't tell my board for sure, but I would do it even if I didn't get paid. I get a front row seat to the, to the beer industry, and I get to work for over 700 breweries and represent them at the state capitol. We're kind of our, their bodyguard at, at the state capitol, so it's, a, it's an amazing job, and thanks for having me. I'll say my most memorable beer was when I tried Sierra Nevada Pale Ale for the first time, which was in about 1981. And a lot of people don't know this, but it looked very different than it does today. It had a big clump of yeast on the bottom of the bottle. It was cloudy. And wow, it was fantastic. Um, so I'll never forget that, that beer. Uh, my name's J.E. Pano. I live uh, about... Uh just over the railroad tracks there. Um, I studied architecture in college, went into construction, came uh, to Sacramento in 2009, and uh, had to walk by the Roostaller building downtown on a daily basis, and kind of putting, the, putting construction together, seeing that that was a, an amazing, well-built building, and if it was built today, it'd be as, as tall as some of the office buildings behind you, and it has a guy's name in front of it. I realized, well, who was this guy? And that kind of started a 
a dive into the history of Sacramento and what, what we were and what we did. And if many of you guys probably know this, but we had over 10 breweries on the grid in Sacramento prior to Prohibition. We were the largest hop growing region in the world prior to Prohibition. And um, that kind of sparked a thought that, hey, maybe we can uh, not do it again because I don't think it's replicable, but we can... Uh, at least bring some honor to the to the past. So that was that started over five years ago, and uh, we've had a few bumps in that since then. Uh, but we, uh, you know, when you when you dive into something that you're passionate about, it's hard to stop. Um, favorite beer or most recent beer? I I knew I told Vanessa. I mean, yeah, Vanessa, that no one's going to answer this honestly, and they haven't tonight. But. Um, uh, I also had a Sierra Nevada when I first went to UC Davis, and I, I don't think I could finish it. It, was, it shocked me so much, but it, it, did, it, it was a, a true introduction to quote-unquote real beer. Um, and this, uh, the Crooked Lane Rye IPA, I would recommend you all get that tonight. It's pretty good. So. And one thing, you know, if we're going to sit here for this long, you guys all should feel free to kind of get up and go get another beer because we're all going to talk, and one of us is going to make you probably bore you. And that's a good time to go up and get a couple people's beer. So. And you should maybe get us a refill. When yeah, you should come yes. by here and ask us I, if we need I was going to say, I haven't had any yet because I was so nervous. So now <laughs> I'm a little more relaxed. So if anyone does want to get me a Crooked Lane IPA, I'll, I'll take it. I'm serious. <laughs> serious. Amy. Um, thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, all right. So first question is kind of like the overview the three, you know, the 360 aerial view. I was reading, you know, I, I read a lot about uh, beer from the bee, Blair Anthony Robertson, and I know, um, actually, I read two stories, one that he wrote and then one that the Sacramento Business Journal wrote about the Craft Beer Summit, right? Is it the California Craft Beer Summit? Is that the? Yes. Okay, that happened last week. Uh, I just had a quick question. How many breweries were there in Capitol Mall um, on Saturday? 165. 165 from statewide. Thank you so much. Um, so I, the Sacramento Business Journal said, the summary, you know, the overview of the sessions on Friday, a few brewers said that right now the California beer scene is becoming an increasingly crowded freeway. You know, it's not open road anymore. There's more competition. There's more everything. And then Blair Anthony Roberts, I think this was before the summit, said, bubble, what bubble? You know, it's not, there's plenty of room. People still go out and drink beer. You know, the grand opening uh, packed. Um, it just sets the bar higher for brewers. So my question is, where are we in, do you think, you know, Sacramento or statewide between open road and totally clogged? Do we still have a lot of room or... Is it getting more, you know, you got to make a splash if you want to open a brewery? Do you have to compete to get? All right. Thank you. To get hops, to get, you know, to get what you need. So I'm just curious about where you see it. Um, I'm English. Last count in the United Kingdom, there were uh, somewhere around 1,600, 1,700 breweries. 
and the whole of the UK will fit into California twice. So that will be 3,000, whatever, you know, double it up, a lot of breweries. So um, I think as long as breweries um, pay attention to quality, uh, as long as brewers um, are attractive and appealing, it's some, uh, the beer they want to drink, uh, it's a place they want to go to if there's a place to drink beer. I think there's tremendous scope. Uh, I, I, I think there's uh, always going to be uh, a growth, uh, it should be a growth, uh, uh, but I think the key word, and I use this, Tom will tell you last week in Sacramento, is quality. And if you have a quality proposition, then the, the, there's every justification for thinking that people will succeed. Well, I, I can say I totally agree with Charlie on uh, the quality prospect. If um, if you're out there serving beer that's substandard, people will know it immediately. The craft beer consumer is getting more educated all the time, and they're not going to drink beer that's, that's mediocre. And so I think for us, that's first and foremost on our mind when we're brewing is quality, we're, we're coming forward with quality checks from the beginning and hoping that we can maintain the highest level of quality we can. It's a question I get asked a lot um, from the media, from consumers, from um, my parents. Um, who knows our Who knows our story? Who knows how we start? Is it, show of hands. Has anybody, has anybody been following us? I know you guys have been around for a while. You guys have been around for a long time. Anybody else? Has anybody else been following us? Jay, you've, you've, you've known us since the beginning. Does, does anyone remember the way we started? We started with a one-barrel brew house. So, you know, quantity wasn't really our focus. It was, it was all about quality. Okay. So, I, I completely agree here it's it's you know Vinny Chalurzo from Russian River was talking to me at, uh, at, at a CCBA event uh, Southern California Stone May 2014 and uh, and he was talking to me and I was I was talking to him about my concerns in 2014 and I said oh there's all these new breweries opening up there's you know it's so hard and, and we have no money and, uh, you know, we, we, every time we sell beer, we turn around and that, that money goes right back into the brewery, and that hasn't changed. Um, but uh, he said something to me. He said, you know, he said, Ken, don't worry. He said, business will always follow good beer. If the beer is good, people are going to buy it. People will seek it out. People will drink it. And what that really boils down to is, 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 is you guys, I mean, the people that are here right now, all with red cups in their hands, you guys are all beer aficionados in your own right. These are people who who are educating themselves on beer. This is not about a 30-pack of Keystone. Nothing against the Keystone Brewery, but this is not a volume game. This is a quality game. Craft beer is all about bringing the finest ingredients, the best uh, uh, practices, and, and a love and a passion for making great beer. So is there is there too many breweries? There may be, but it's going to shake itself out. Those, those breweries that are making good beer, you will make the decision for, for the, the, the industry. If, if the breweries aren't meeting your standards, it's going to show in their bottom line.
Yeah, I don't think there's too many breweries at all. I think we have a long, long ways to go before we're saturated. You know, you could put a brewery on the corner right over there and service this wonderful neighborhood and be the, the living room of this little community here, and that business model works. So it depends on your business model. If you want to be another Sierra Nevada, that's a little bit more difficult and uh, a lot more challenging. So it really depends on your business model. The other hard part is we all agree on one thing, and that is quality. And the hard part is when you put beer into a package, uh, such as a can or a bottle, uh, it changes the equation dramatically. It's much more difficult to put beer in a can or a bottle and send it to a distributor, which then sends it to a retailer and it sits on a warm, sunny back dock. You lose control. It has to have a longer shelf life. So um, that's where quality can uh, be out of your control and so it really changes the equation. But um, so it's kind of a, a complicated equation, but um, no, I think we'll see a lot more breweries to come. I mean, we're not even close, I don't think, to being saturated. Uh, the only thing I'd add to everything that's been said is I think education is the most important thing. And I think it's, 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 that's what's so great about a panel like tonight. Um, and then what happens is you guys take a little bit that comes from here and you tell your mom or your dad or your brother or your uncle or your sister or your whatever, and, uh, and that's how it works. And so the thing is we, we can, none of us here can buy that billboard up there and we can't, you know, we can't pay our way into Rayleigh's field. So the only competitive, the only way we can be competitive in that marketplace, especially when you, you get into grocery stores and, and kind of a little bit of a larger market outside of your tap, tap room is education. You have to have a good product first, but then, then you have to try to educate. And that's why, that's why we come to these things because um, I can't speak to you guys effectively by a billboard. I, and Ken's good, but he can't either. And nor can Teresa. So this is, this is a great use of our time. And we're super thankful to people like Vanessa and Fulcrum that puts on these kind of events because this gives us a great opportunity to, to share our story, which is, it's different. They're all authentic and real. And then hopefully, um, even if there was two people here tonight, it would be a great use of our time. And we're really thankful for you because you're listening to us. <laughs> yeah. At least you look like you're listening to us. <laughs> and can anyone hear? Okay. Um, I, I am gonna. We're gonna podcast. Thanks. <laughs> okay, we're gonna podcast it too, so everyone else can hear it too. Um, speaking of education, I was curious. Did uh, did any of you go to the Craft Beer Summit on Friday when they had sessions? You'll, okay, and I was just curious. Did you learn something new, or like, wow, I never realized, or oh, that makes me think food for thought. I was just because I know it's the second one, right, that you've had here in Sacramento? Right, second one. So I was just wondering if you, as an attendee, learned something new that you didn't know before or just distinctive stuff? Well, I went to the off-flavor testing, and I got a metallic off-flavor that I cannot ever forget, so. Wait, the, the panel was called, or the session yeah, was called? Yeah, so, so it was a training by a Cicerone, and what's interesting is if you take a beer that has metallic off flavor and you spread it on the top of your hand, you can smell it, and it smells like brass. But 
Oh my goodness, the, the spike sample they gave us, once I tasted it, I was really looking for like a tongue scraper. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was powerful, so, but it was a really cool trick. So if you ever want to see if a beer has a metallic off flavor, put it on <laughs> your hand. I walked around the uh, convention floor and I was able to talk to tap handle manufacturers, canning line manufacturers, grain silo manufacturers, brew house manufacturers, glass manufacturers, malt suppliers, hop suppliers. I could go on. Um, uh, brewery insurance, brewery attorneys. Uh, from, from my standpoint, I'm sorry, I keep looking down. I'm trying to keep my bill, I'm trying to keep my bill where the sun doesn't just nail me. Um, the, the summit was a wealth of education. There, there were, it, it, was, it was a mini CBC. Really, I mean, we're, we're talking. That's what we tried to do, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Tom nailed it. So um, from my standpoint as, as, a, as a, you know, a fairly new member of the industry uh, going on our fourth year, I learned a lot, not only in the, in the seminars, but, but just walking around talking with vendors and suppliers and, and really getting an opportunity to uh, to learn some new things. So, did anyone great. here go to the the California Craft Beer Summit this last weekend? No. It's a very uh, well, a couple, very unique event in that it's it's uh, it's a trade show with um, you know all the vendors out there on the floor and educational seminars going on, lots and lots of free beer and food. Uh, but what's unique is that the public is invited. It's kind of an industry trade show, but we invite the public and retailers and wholes everybody in the industry and the public. So it's an opportunity to, to come and, and meet the brewers firsthand as you're walking around. But And a lot of the educational seminars are, are oriented, targeted for the consumer as, as well as the industry as well. So next year, uh, we'll have be holding the third annual summit. And then Saturday is the, the day where everyone is on the Capitol lawn, right? Yeah, then we have a really kind of a traditional beer festival out on the Capitol Mall in front of the Capitol. It's the largest beer festival in the state, and it's just breweries from California. We have 165 breweries there pouring about 500 different beers. So, y yes, uh, again, from that Sacramento Business Journal story, you know, the whole the crowded highway and... Uh, I was just curious about barriers to entry, so you know that weren't there five years ago. I know you said you started what three years ago. You just started. You've been around for a while. I guess in the time that you have been here, or just experiencing setting up a brewery, uh, and for those who are curious or want to, you know, go from home brewing to pro, what barriers to entry are there now that wouldn't weren't there three five years ago, or is it still open? I would say that the biggest challenge for a lot is going to be hop contracts right now um, because a lot, of, a lot of breweries are really trying to uh, push out beers that are featuring some of the, uh, the more uh, sexy hops. Um, Citra, Galaxy, Nelson Savin, Mosaic, um, you know, Enigma, some of these newer ones, Laurel, ones we haven't even heard of yet. Um, so I, I, we, we're, we're dealing with that. And uh, I presume newer breweries are also dealing with that. Okay. Um, actually, and this question is for you, Ken. I, 
again, I get a lot of my information and questions from the B and Blair Robertson, but or Tony, I guess. Um, but it was interesting to me how he wrote about you and raved, but you said, you know, I still wake up at 2 a.m. and with insomnia. Um, I know how that feels right now. But uh, I just thought that's interesting. You get so many raves, but you still worry about business? or Well, that's totally, totally not true. It's 3 a.m. <laughs> sorry. Not 2 a.m. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't worry. I, I was actually talking to my, um, uh, my physical therapist about it yesterday. And uh, she asked me, you know, she's one of these sort of hands-on manipulation kind of people. And she's like, so, so explain to me what you're not sleeping over. And I was like, how do you know I'm not sleeping? So your body's telling me you're not sleeping. Like, all right, well, touche, you probably read the B. Um, no, I don't worry. It's, it's not worry. It's preoccupation. You know, I, I, I explained to her, I said, worry, worry to me is you see something bad or you, you, you predict something bad is coming and you're, and you're concerned about it and you're worried about it and you think, you know, the, the worst is going to happen. I don't worry. My, my sleeplessness comes from a constant preoccupation with making the best beer around. And we have a, a reputation for making great beer. So what, what, what do I, what keeps me up at night? What keeps me up at night is worrying about the fact that now it's no longer the Ken show. I can't make all the beer physically myself. I don't brew all the beer the way that I did for the first two years. I employ people and train people to make that, the, those beers. And I try to oversee everything. But as, as anybody knows who's in business, you can't do everything all the time. You have to pass the torch. You have to train and empower and release. And what keeps me up at night is that concern that I can maintain the integrity and the quality of the product that we put out while being hands-off to certain parts of it. And that's what really, really just absolutely um, haunts me. And, and the bigger we get and the more beer we produce, I mean, our first year we produced 23 barrels. Not impressive. Sudwork, Sudwork makes more than that before the coffee break. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to be over 1,000 this year. So as we grow, it, it just makes more, more, you know, more beer, more money, more problems, right? And, and, and my, my sleeplessness really comes from um, concern that I can, can I, can I maintain this integrity? Can I maintain this quality? That's, that's the part that keeps me awake um, because people have come to expect nothing but the best and we, we work day and night, and, and I believe me, I obsess day and night over bringing the consumer, who really is what we do this for, bringing the very, very best product I can bring. I, I think what a leader does is he's, he tries to look ahead and anticipate problems. And when you're, you're, you're always looking for those problems, so you're a little neurotic. Um, but maybe. Uh, so I, I get up about then too. But backing up to the earlier question, so when we started Whole Foods, I remember Whole Foods and Nugget had both ripped out these huge aisles of like a huge section of their beer aisle of of uh, you know six and eighteen packs of beer, and were like had bombers the the bottles in three and four facings just to fill up the the thing and. We had gone six years ago. We were at this Discovery Park Beer Festival, which is coming up this Saturday. And um, 
we were approached at that event by Whole Foods saying, hey, when, are you, when is one of your, your beers going to be in bottles? And so when Whole Foods ask, you know, when are you going to be in bottles, you say, hey, how many would you like? And we, but we didn't even know how to get a beer in a bottle at the time. And so they're not, that's not a problem anymore. You know, they don't have, they're not ripping any more six or 18, they're not moving the beer aisle, they're not changing it, they're not ripping it out. They're not making it any bigger. So that 22-ounce bomber section is where we got to compete. And we can get into a lot of reasons why that's the area you got to compete as a, as a small brewery. But, um, and it's getting very competitive. And so I think the business model, if any of you guys want to start a brewery, the business model is, is definitely start direct-to-consumer. So a tap room or what have you where you're selling directly to the consumer. Margins are much higher. Um, you get to control the message, but once it leaves the brewery, you lose control, you lose the message, and so you have to work much harder, and your margin drops. So it's a, it's a tricky kind of gr that growth, that growth step's very tough, and it, it, it was easier five or six years ago in Sacramento. It's very, very difficult now. One of the things you guys have all noticed is a lot of breweries from out of town are coming to Sacramento to try to kind of put a flag. And, you know, enough, Stephen, I know, I know I, this is not a knock here, but, you know, Drake's is coming here. Why are they coming here? Because they realize that in, for, in order for them to grow, this market, the Sacramento market, is a great market. Sierra Nevada, you know, is doing a, putting a flag in the arena. And both great breweries, you know, John Martin was one of the guys that started the CCBA. So, and so was Ken Grossman. So fantastic people. So hats off to them. But what they're realizing is that in order for them to grow, they need to expand into newer markets. And this market is one of the um, maybe underdeveloped or kind of still, they're still, they still see some room to grow. And so it's, a, it's one we're all, we're not, we aren't just fighting for it. So are people from out of town. And, uh, you know, but they're bringing, their ships are bigger and their guns are bigger. And, you know, so we have to sit on a panel in the sunset. But you know what? Hey, we, we'll do it every day. Um, I just a question came to me just off the top of my head for you, Charlie. I guess like the future of brewers here. You you've been doing it for so long. I was curious the people who are coming through the program now. Has it changed any in terms of who's coming in and why they're coming into the program and what they want to get out of the program compared to I don't know ten years ago? Is it different or the same? What are you saying? That's a very astute question. I'm, I'm actually going to be in North Carolina at a certain brewery next week belonging to Ken Grossman, and they've asked me to give a presentation on that very same topic. Um, I think the obsession is with the so-called craft industry. I, I really have a down and a, a real problem with the word craft because all brewers are craftspeople. And um, it doesn't matter whether you work for the tiniest brewing company or the biggest brewing company, um, you care about the craft of brewing. And, and brewers come together through all sorts of organizations like the Master Brewers Association. And it doesn't matter whether you work for the world's biggest or the world's smallest, everybody's in there to, uh, to be a team player. So I, I fundamentally have a problem with the word craft. But what do people want when the students come to UC Davis? I would say 98% of them want to, what I jokingly call, start the dog's posterior brewing company. Um, in, in North Dakota or somewhere where nobody lives. Um, and, um, and that's fine. Um, 
but I, I really do think that the people need to remember that uh, there are many, many people out there who drink beer uh, that doesn't fall into the, the character uh, that uh, many people would think of being good quality beer. There are, there are millions of people who drink um, traditional beer, should we say, and it doesn't make them bad people. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, there's real enthusiasm and passion. That's the great thing about the, uh, the smaller brewing companies, uh, that they, they really are interested in uh, innovation, they're interested in, in doing things uh, differently. Um, but that's not to say that traditional ways of doing things are not a good thing. Uh, I'm no big fan of the Reinheitsgebot, the German purity law, but you know, if it's a toss-up between using malt or even rice, or, or, you know, bull gonads. I'll, I'll go for the malt and the rice every time. Um, so there are some strange things happening in the, in the world of uh, so-called craft brewing. So the, the difference is that there's a lot of interest, a lot of knowledge now about brewing, a lot of ideas out there about uh, how it should be done. Um, but we, we like the students to make up their own mind. And we like to remind them that it's okay, it's okay to go work for a bigger brewing company. Um, you know, some of those big guys, they, um, I'm not a big fan of some of their marketing and business practices. So if I had a, if I had a real down on uh, some of the very big brewing companies, it's the way they do business. But I refuse to hear a bad word said about technical brewers from big brewing companies because they are very, very good. Um, God, I have a lot of questions, but we're... I want to get you guys, too, at the mic. But I did have a question for you, Teresa. You're one of the newest breweries, and you quit your jobs, right? The three or four of you to do it. And again, reading the article, it was a rave that the brewery is you know, top-notch, and you have the app where you can get your growler filled in advance, so it's waiting for you. So very, very you know, quality stuff. It sounds like it costs money, and I get the sense that now, maybe to start a brewery and be known or make your uh, make yourself start out known from the get-go, you have to put more money into it. I'm, that's my perception, but just curious about when you guys were talking about this, was there any trepidation or you're just like, let's go all in, but when we do it, we have to do it at a bigger scale or just what were your, when you got this together, what was the thoughts about how to make yourself known, you know? Does that make, make sense? Well, we, um, when we started thinking about what we wanted to do with the brewery, one of the first things we did was talk to other brewers. And um, the first thing, my husband, Adrian, who's back there pouring beer, he's the real brains behind the operation. Um, the first thing he learned was you need to get your hops. So we've been securing hops for two years. And then the second thing was most brewers said on their first brewery, they really wished they'd gone bigger because as soon as they opened the brewery, they had to expand. So we really thought about that. And we thought about, you know, even though it was going to cost more money, even though it was a big pain to get all that money together, that we were going to build a brewery that we could grow with and grow into. So we decided on a 15-barrel brew house from the get-go. We set up our brew space so we could expand with 60-barrel tanks if we wanted to. We set the floors so these things could go in. Because, you know, we don't 
we didn't want to stay small. We wanted to go big, and we wanted to see how big we can go in our facility as it is. Another reason that we put a lot of money as one way to look at it, but <laughs> put a lot of, um, of customer area into our brewery is we uh, located ourselves in a commercial zone. So we're off of Highway 49 in a commercial zoned building. We're not in an industrial zone tucked away. So we actually were required to put 75% customer access areas into our plan to be approved by the city. Of Auburn, but, you're in Auburn. Uh, city of Auburn, that's right. So for us, the building that we moved into, it ended up being a really um, great customer experience because we've got our brew house, but it's separated in a quarter of our building. And then we've got a expansive tap room, a patio on the side and patio on the front. And what we found is I think over these last two weeks, we're so happy that we have all these areas because some areas are more kid-friendly than others. You know, kids absolutely love to dig in the DG patio that we have. We have some areas that are for sports fans. Like, if you want to come and watch football, we have, we have that inside the tap room area. And then if you want a, a more quiet place, it's out on the patio. So... For us, for the building that we moved into, it was the right choice. It's not for everybody, but we're, we're pretty happy that we did it this way. Even though, you know, we are leveraged to the hilt and, you know, this really has to succeed for us. Um, we're still, I think it's coming together really nicely. For Ken and JE, uh, in terms of growth and building, uh, expanding your business, you know, more beer, more facilities, like what are the plans, the short, medium, long-term plans? Can you divulge any thoughts about what you're going to do? <laughs> well, okay, let me tie that into a question I had about what went down, I guess you call it the Solano County effect. Uh, the tap room in Dixon was closed by the Solano County uh, on your hops farm and... Um, there was a good story that I read in City Scout where you were talking about the death and all this money that you had to put into, a, you know, a, apparently appeasing, you know, the codes and, and uh, whatever they had. And got. So I guess lessons learned from that in terms of what you would do differently, what you're going to do going forward. So when you start a brewery, you got a lot of different constituents. You have uh, customers. You also have partners. And, um, and then you have competitors. And then you have, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm not trying to insult anybody when I say this, but you have ignorance. In other words, you have people that don't, that don't know, you know, what a hop looks like. <laughs> you know, they don't know uh, that, whatever. And so, you know, I, I don't really want to say a lot about that because it just it's to, to us it's it's a very emotional thing very emotional uh, to us you know my team it was a uh, it was like getting on a, on a head-on car collision and you know I don't I was telling the guys earlier we haven't actually hit bottom yet so we're not in a position uh, of we're still trying to recover from that but you know 
in, a sh in short, we reached for the moon. And we missed. And so we're falling back down to earth, and <laughs> we haven't hit bottom yet. But uh, for anybody that was there, I think they thought, they saw that, that what we were trying to do was something different, that it was a combination of, of uh, just kind of a hands-on experience of, of what, what was great about Sacramento. And I, you know, I think a lot about actually this, we call this a building, but really all this is is a shade structure because what Sacramento is great at is we have the best weather in the world. At times though, you need a little protection from the rain and the sun. And that's in essence what we were trying to do in a very unique spot with very unique characteristics. And a risk taker, you know, anybody that starts a business, um, you have to take risks. And so we took some calculated risks. And uh, the short and sweet of it is we, we were um, being encouraged. What I had to do was I had to marry a bureaucracy and a, uh, a landlord and a land trust to an investor. So I had to bring a tremendous amount of money to a piece of land that we would never own, which is antithesis of an owner. People that have money are like, wait, I got to put all this money in and then I'm never, I'm going to give it up at some day. But I, that was what we were trying to do. And the ironic thing is for three years, we had the landlord, the county, and the land trust right here helping us. And then as we brought the money, and then right when the money was there, and so we were left naked. And it didn't look pretty. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, but we reach, you know, the, the positives are that we reach for the stars. We reach for the moon. And we learned a lot. And as we've kind of fallen, what it has done is it's galvanized our team. And it's galvanized our partnership group. So, um, but like I said, we got to hit bottom first, and I don't know if we have yet, and uh, that's just kind of the way the cookie, the cookie crumbles. So, everything you do in life is a calculated risk, and we took, we, we thought um, partly because of the, the legacy that inspired us, uh, us of Sacramento and of, of this guy Frank Rustaller and his family that still is alive, that we needed to, to shoot to shoot big, and so we did. Um, but uh, so we're licking our wounds, and uh, but we're also very thankful for for a lot of things. And um, uh, I did not go to the beer summit much because um, we had hop harvest, and then we have a little bit of a construction project. So hopefully we'll have something to talk about soon, but not tonight. Well, I didn't mean to completely deflect your question. I I just was going to let him answer that first. Um, your question was about expansion? I guess future growth. Sure. Well, so we, you know, we've been in growth mode. People always come into our tap room and they sit down with me and they say, hey, Ken, have you, have you guys thought about expanding? I said, yeah, every night, about 3 a.m. Um, we are always in expansion mode. We are always expanding. We are always uh, going for, you know, the next thing. We got a drone up there? Oh, wow, yeah. All right, everyone, let's wave to the drone. Hi, drone. Oh, there, it's going away now. It's been spotted. 
Okay, so you know we're always we're always shooting for the the, the next thing, and and um, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, um, we don't ever see us stopping growing and expanding. Uh, we started with sixteen hundred square feet. We're 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 getting close to ten thousand square feet now. We've got three units in a row plus one across the, the way. My property manager jokes. He goes, "Well, over under. When are you going to control the whole building?" Um, and I always say, oh, you know, I'll let you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a calculated risk. Jay's absolutely right. Everything we do is a risk. You know, a lot of people say, well, hey, I'd really love to see you in six-pack cans. Well, yes, yeah, so would I. <laughs> you know, it's, we're not in six-pack cans not because we don't want to be in six-pack cans. We're, we're not in six-pack cans right now because it's not feasible for us to be in six-pack cans right now. Uh, everything, everything... Everything a brewery does costs way more than anyone could ever imagine. It's 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 almost sickening. What 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 the uh, the the cost of, of doing business in this industry is, um, but it is all about calculated growth and it is all about um, buying into your community because you know we always start it's it's the bullseye effect right. Focus on the smallest circle. Own that little circle. If you've completely exhausted your resources in that little circle, draw a slightly larger circle around that, and then own that circle. You know, we, we, we started with, like I said, 1,600 square feet in a one-barrel system. We produced 23 barrels our first year, and granted, we didn't start brewing until about July of that year, but nonetheless, still embarrassingly little amount of beer. But we now distribute out to Lake Tahoe, as far as the Bay Area, Chico, Nevada City, we go to the Altamont Pass and we go to Livermore, Tracy, Dublin, Danville, you name it. We're going all these places and we're all doing it our, on our own accord. So you know, these are all risks we take and we try to expand and we try to grow. But at the end of the day, it's all about focusing on the local market because the local market will keep you afloat. If your beer is, is shipped off to who knows where, they have no ownership in you. They don't care. If your, if your beer turns out to be a shelf turd, as we like to call it, when you put these things in a package and it sits on a warm shelf, they're, they're not going to say, like, like my friends here in the front row who've been to my brewery, I can't even count how many times. They pick up a bad beer from, from me in, at, a, at a place that's stored at warm, and they go, oh, this tastes kind of like, yeah, the hops have dropped off. He's going to shoot me an email. And you're like, hey, Ken, what's going on with that beer? That happens way out outside of the market, they're not going to say, hey, Ken, what happened to that beer? They're going to go on to social media and yelp and everything. go, this brewery sucks. So you, you own your market, own your community, um, do what you can for the community, and when you make mistakes, which we all do, you own your mistakes and you try to do better the next time around. So again, um, there's the mic, and I've got a few questions, but I guess if anyone else has got questions... You can line up at the mic. Don't be shy because I'm sure there's plenty you have to ask that I don't even have on my list to ask. So uh, start lining up. But um, I did have a question for Tom specifically, but uh, you know everyone else. I was just curious about what um, legislation you're looking at right now uh, that might be beneficial or not to breweries in the state. I just had to deal with the ABC getting a one-day liquor license, so I got a little taste of, you know, legislation and how it affects alcohol sales. And 
uh, servicing. But just curious right now, what's on your radar in terms of, um, you know, what may affect craft breweries and therefore beer drinkers? Wait, before Tommy answers, yes. I want to I explain what this guy does. So you see us breweries and then you see retailers like a restaurant or a grocery store, right? But bef before Prohibition, that's all there was. There was guys that made it and guys that sold it. And then Prohibition came about and a bunch of Italian brothers of mine started going into bootlegging and they made a lot of money. And after Prohibition, they didn't go away quietly. They became inserted at, as, as distributors. And, the, and, and the, the thugs, the guns went away and w instead what they used is they used law. So the nice guys went and made ABC laws. Uh, the smart guys did. The nice guys went into wine distribution. The medium nice guys went into spirits distribution. And the real thugs went into beer distribution. And the reason is is because 85% of the liquid that gets moved is beer. And they knew they were in the business of moving water with alcohol. And so they have a couple of people every in every state, a million-dollar lawyers that are fighting for their cases, the distributors, and protecting the the positions of Bud Coors and Miller. And that's why Bud Coors and Miller, along with a couple other things, grew to dominate the beer market. And then Fritz Maytag, when he started, um, or bought Anchor Steam, he realized there was a problem, and he realized that they needed to have a voice here. And so that's what Tom does. Like, the Beer Summit's this minor thing that he does, but the real thing he does is he speaks for us little guys. I can't afford a 400 to $500 an hour lobbyist to go run the halls of Capitol Hill. But if me and Ken and Teresa and everyone else puts some coins together, and that's what, we, that's what Fritz Maytag started, and then we give that money to Tom, and he's got a much cooler demeanor than we do, and then he basically brings our beer, and he cracks open a beer with these guys and says, okay, let's talk. So I want you to understand what he does. He, that's, it's kind of most, mo before I got into, into, into Roostaller, I had no idea there was this kind of, this, uh, this thing going on. Either did I. I uh, let me make one thing perfectly clear. I'm not a lobbyist. We, uh, we hire a lobbyist, but um, yeah, the alcohol beverage business is highly regulated. It's one of the most regulated industries uh, in the country. It's more regulated. Uh, uh, probably, you know, hazardous waste um, is is probably more regulated, but so we're number two or three in terms of regulations, and those all came out of uh, prohibition. So when you have those regulations, they're subject to change. So it's the alcohol beverage business is also a big, big industry in uh, this country. So all the different what we call stakeholders, the big breweries, the wholesalers, the wine industry, spirits. They all have lobbyists. Um, they all have uh, PAC funds. We are a grassroots organization. We do not pay to play at the state capitol. We don't have a PAC fund. Uh, we do have a number of keg raters over there, and we spend a lot of time getting our beer over there to the state capitol. A lot of good craft beer is, is served at the state capitol. We do a lot of beer tastings over there. We basically hands-on educate the legislators about our industry. Um, we play mostly defense. We do sponsor bills, but they're typically little things. But uh, things like that we take for granted, that you take for granted, like tasting rooms. Tasting rooms are not allowed in all states. Um, we're very lucky to have uh, more privileges here in California as beer manufacturers, brewers, than literally any other state in the country. That's been through a slow progression of 
kind of loosening up the laws here in California through bills. There are other stakeholders or competitors in the industry that want to see those privileges removed. So things like tasting rooms, retail sales, the ability to self-distribute, that, that means that these three brewers can take the beer from their brewery and deliver it straight to a retailer. That's very unusual in the United States. It's actually allowed here in California. Without our tap room and self-distribution, we would not still be in business. So we, uh, we really work to defend those privileges. So most of what we do is, is playing defense. I will also say another thing that's unique about the alcohol beverage industry is that you, there's no pay to play at, at between the, the uh, manufacturer, the brewer, winery, uh, spirits, uh, distiller. You can't pay a retailer uh, anything to carry your brand. There. So there's no payola. There's no slotting fees. So if you own, start a small potato chip business and you go to a retailer like Whole Foods or Nugget or Safeway, they're going to say, sure, we'll be happy to put your potato chips on the shelf. It's going to cost you so much money per cubic inch of that shelf space. And if you want an end display or if you want us to run an ad for you, it's going to cost you so much money to do that. Here's the bill. So you have to, you have to pay for that retail presence. Uh, that is actually not allowed for al alcoholic beverage uh, products here in California and across the United States are called Tide House Laws. That's a long story I won't go into, but um, guess what? Who, who would prefer, who would like to see those laws go away? The, the people that have a lot of money. So Charlie uh, kind of alluded to the big brewers. You know, you can't criticize them for their beer. They make wonderful beer, but I'll tell you what, they make me mad as hell out there in the marketplace because they break the law all the time. They have extremely aggressive marketing practices, and they do pay to play. When they go into stadiums and arenas and the big grocery stores, um, they, they break the law. And um, so they are slowly, so the new frontier for us at the state capitol is to protect these Tide House laws that we have. They are slowly but surely uh, sponsoring bills here in California to remove those Tide House laws that we have in place. We had a very significant bill that was sponsored by a big spirits company introduced uh, this year at the state capitol and, and we were actually able to defend that and kill that bill. So. Um, it's a very convoluted political world. I and mean, you know, people don't think there's politics to beer and you know, that's the the brewers leave it to us while they make the good beer, but so it's it's kind of a strange weird world over there and and it's our job to uh, protect kind of the the privileges that we have in place today. I can't believe no one has any questions, really. Okay, well I've got a few. I've got a few more. Yay! All right. I'll I'll hold off on mine. It's okay. Hi. So my name's David, um, and I had a question. Sorry. Is this better? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I had a question regarding um, a lot of breweries I see nowadays have a little bit more of a family-friendly orientation to them. I don't know if that's always been the case or if I'm just noticing it more nowadays. I'm kind of wondering how that plays a role in how you guys approach, you know, the way you guys sell beer or produce it or just kind of how that family-friendly atmosphere because now that I'm seeing a lot of babies at breweries I'm um, just kind of curious because I don't remember that I guess when I was younger but again maybe I wasn't paying attention 
Um, just kind of curious about that whole realm in general. So we have a tap room and we allow children. We love children and, and part of that is because Melissa, my wife and I have two. And one of them is going to be turning five in about a week or so, and the other one's going to be turning two years old in December. So we have little ones. And when we opened the brewery, Mateo was behind the scenes in a pack-and-play with, uh, with some toys uh, while Melissa and I tended bar. So for us, it's, you know, we, we, really, we really embrace the culture of, uh, of a family environment because not only did we want uh, a place where we would be, feel comfortable with our own children being there, but we also are sympathetic because there's days when we just want to get out, go to a brewery, we can't find a sitter, we just want to go. Um, Berryessa is kind of our go-to for that. You know, we'll, we'll head out to Berryessa, we'll play a little cornhole, the kids will climb on the hay, Chris and I will sit and knock down three or four beers, and it's a good time, and then Melissa will drive home. Um, but um, to answer your question, uh, I, I believe that, 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 this, that this thing that we're doing is about community, and it's about a culture of, um, uh, of community and family. Um, obviously, children aren't drinking beer, but you want a safe place that's, that, you know, we, we, don't feel, um, we don't feel that our brewery taproom is a place that children shouldn't be because we foster an environment that is kid-friendly. We, if anyone's rowdy or out of control, we snub that literally right then and there. We walk, we walk over and we put our hand on someone's back. We go, hey, you know what? This is not the place for that. You want to be rowdy? There's a thousand other places in town you can go. It's not happening here. And people adopt that culture. And, and what you find is, is you find that people need somewhere to go on the weekend. They need somewhere to be able to just say, hey, you know, it's, it's 1230 on a Saturday. There's a good food truck down at Device. Let's go down and grab a little lunch. Mom and dad can have a beer, but we can take the kids. We don't have to pay 30 or 40 or 50 bucks on top of our outing to have somebody watch the kids. One of the first things I realized when I came to live in the States in 1989 was there's a crazy mixed up attitude to alcohol. And one of my um, fellow faculty members said to me, oh, we do drink beer, but we never do it in front of the children. And I said, it's one of the dumbass things I've ever heard in my bloody life. Because if they don't see you, you know, treating things responsibly, having fun is just another okay thing to do. Then when they get older, then they'll just screw up and they'll abuse it because they haven't learned. So I think anything that can be done to encourage responsibility but also to, to see and, and to bring uh, it's a family drink um, you know yeah not don't ply the kids with it but don't hide away from doing it so what Ken's got I think is a, a tremendously good way of doing things um, there was a uh, an English MP uh, a number of years ago who, who, who again encouraged uh, pubs to become family friendly because then uh, it's it's just people seeing beer drinking as being a good part of good, uh, wholesome social fabric. Yeah, we, we call the, it the Roostaller Farm Yard and Dog Park. And what we also found was that if you, didn't, if you had had kids, those parents drank a lot more, a lot faster. So they were really good customers because children tended to 
drive them crazy. So. All right, uh, I got ten more minutes. Okay. Hey everybody, thanks for coming out. Uh, in any professional career, mistakes will be made, and I just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about what some of those mistakes were and what you would do different if you had another chance. I have to jump in on this one because we had a mistake. Um, you know, we're a new brewery, so we brewed a beer. We put a yeast in there that was not to style, didn't have the right character. So uh, we were going to dump the beer. And we know this happens to a lot of breweries. But instead of just dumping it, we decided to do a dunk tank of beer and uh, recruit <laughs> brewers from the area to get in the dunk tank and we were going to raise money for charity. So that we did last Sunday, actually. We uh, had our dunk tank of beer. And uh, I think we raised like $1,200 for a charity. And um, I just, I, I had my reservations. This idea came to light and I thought, I'm not so sure about this. You know, everybody knows that breweries make mistakes and beer needs to be dumped, but it's kind of one of those things, like it all happens behind the black curtain. And you want to project that we are producing quality all the time and here's a quality misstep. Um, but when everything was said and done, it was really a positive experience. It was, um, you know, we did something good with it. A lot of people came by. It was a really good time. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my uh, <laughs> big misstep and, uh, but turned into something good. You two have had no missteps whatsoever to let's. So the last batch of beer that we dumped, we, uh, we posted a video of us dumping it on social media. So I don't know if anybody saw that, but it was about $20,000 worth of beer. Um, no big deal. <laughs> but... Um, you know, the way we look at it is, uh, yeah, we all make mistakes. Uh, the, the batch of beer we dumped was one of our newer production guys made a mistake, and it, it affected the batch of beer. The beer was still good. I mean, it was good, drinkable beer, but it wasn't what we were going for. It wasn't what we had designed. It wasn't the plan. And uh, at the end of the day, instead of, you know, everybody in my camp, and I don't want to throw my guys under the bus, but they were the ones who screwed up the beer, so naturally they were trying to convince me that it was okay. But they said, you know, no, 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 we'll just call it this, or we'll just call it that, you know, just, just call it something else. And I said, we're not in the business of just calling it something else. If I want to brew this beer, we're brewing this beer. And if we get something else, we're not going to throw the, 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 the we're not going to throw New England under the bus and call it a, a, a Northeast IPA. That's insulting to the Northeast. So it it went down the drain for all to see. What what would I do differently? Better training? I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty I'm pretty hard to work for as far as my uh, my attention to detail. So I don't know I don't know what I could have done better, but. Um, I wasn't about to uh, try to pull the wool over the consumer's eyes. What we put out is what we is what we stand behind. Years ago, I was the QA manager of one of the Bass breweries 
and we used to put a little bit of copper into the beer to mop up this eggy flavor. And this particular day, this guy walked into my office and the beer was blue. He put this, this blue beer down on the table in front of me and I said, what's that? He said, well, you're the smart-ass PhD guy. You tell me. Uh, and what he'd done, he'd miscalculated the copper and put in 10,000 times too much. And, and he said, you know, I, I just had a pint and it was great. Uh, so his stomach was pumped. And, um, but the wine guys do it all the time. You know, they put copper in like there's no tomorrow. But uh, that was a pretty bad one. That was a pretty bad one. Um, our motto is fail early, fail often, get them out of the way. You know, you, if you do anything, you're, you're going to make mistakes. So you might as well do them earlier than later. And then if you got an idea, let's try to kill it. So the only way to kill it is you just got to try and fail. And so failure is part of this process, and it's going to be part of it. And you just got to keep moving on. And um, yeah. Micah. Getting ready for it. Sing us a song, would you? <laughs> um, so to your point earlier, the quality of the beer can make or break a small brewery that's just starting out. If your quality's not good, the customers won't come and you're dead. But up until that point, um, you need to bring customers to the beer somehow and get them in front of a bottle or to your brew pub and attract them in. And what is your favorite... Um, either guerrilla or mainstream marketing method for getting customers to your tasting room or to pick your bottle off the shelf as opposed to, you know, your competitor next to them. I'll always defer to Charlie if, if he's... Okay. Well, I don't make a product. <laughs> well, we, we, we opened up in a time when there really weren't that many choices. Um, it doesn't sound like a long time ago when we, we started in 2013. Um, but if you look at the landscape and you look at the number of, of different breweries in the area in 2013, it wasn't a much different number. Much, much different number. So then we put our beer out there and the social media took a hold of it and told other people about it and people told their friends around the water cooler about it and people showed up and they liked it and they came back and then they came back again and then they told someone else and then they came back. Um, to be perfectly honest, I don't think until even this year we've ever even had discussions about what do we do to encourage more more people to come out to the tap room. The, these, are, these are new discussions for us because really up until recently really wasn't needed because we made fantastic beer. We provided a safe and comfortable place for people to come and, and people just came. Um, I think now with, with more and more choices, you've not only got more breweries, but you've got more um, bottle shops in, in tap rooms that are not brewery tap rooms, but you've got you know uh, uh, craft beer bars out there and, and restaurants that are you know 24 handles deep. You know, we... We think about that. Um, we don't do much, to be honest with you. We try to keep the, the consumer informed on social media is what, what we're up to. Um, I spent all morning brewing today at Knee Deep, and we threw a photo up on social media and said, hey, we're brewing at Knee Deep today. We're having a good time. 
that's what we do. Um, the only even remotely gimmicky thing that I think that we've ever done uh, turned out to be a good one, and we we were happy for it. We we do trivia on Wednesday nights, and uh, Wednesday nights start to look like Friday nights. So I, I don't know how to answer that other than we've really just relied on word of mouth and and people recognizing that our place is a fun place to go. All right, I have three more questions, and I will, of course, defer to anyone who goes up to the mic, because I know you guys have questions, you're just shy, but uh, one question I did have is, um, yeah, come on, yeah, all right, brave. Uh, so it seems like the style of beer in California right now is more of a darker or more flavorful, like IPA style. I'm just wondering what you guys think is going to be the future of uh, the popular beer in That was California. one of my questions. So good job. Um, who can tell? I'm not a psychic. Um, um, you know, I, I really can't answer that question, but there's a lot of interest, I think, in in going into, um, should we say, more modest beers um, that are not so full in your face, uh, more session-type products that um, that uh, are easier possibly to drink, um, perhaps not quite so alcoholic. Uh, I'm not a psychic, so I wouldn't know. Uh, I'm a simple professor. Um, uh, I really don't know. Uh, it, it probably uh, is, uh, it, whatever it is, it's going to be, like any other good beer, it's going to be balanced. And I, th I think the secret to a great beer is a beer that is in balance. And, and, and I, it's no secret, I love black IPAs. Uh, J.E. will tell you that. Uh, but equally, I, don't, I really don't mind a very bland beer as long as it's in balance. I think a, a heavily dry hopped Bud Light will be a disaster. Um, but uh, who knows? I feel like uh, maybe Kolsch is the new IPA. I, I, um, I think there's, there's a lot of beers, um, a lot of styles that have been unexplored. And um, especially for people who are new to craft beer, you need to have... I, and I speak for myself because we're a brewery on a pretty major major thoroughfare. So we have 50,000 cars passing every day. If those people pull off and what we have to give them is double IPA, it's going to be too much. So we have a honey wheat. We have a Kolsch. We have some beers that are not particularly hoppy. And I think those those beers are just like a good gateway to craft beer and um, and I say Kolsch because I, I see so many breweries are doing the style and it's really a wonderful style I mean if you if you can get into that flavor it's it's really complex and it's really lightly flavored it's low alcohol it's a really delicious beer so we do one and you know I, I love to try different ones because they're and and even that within that one style, there's so much you can do, and so many um, so many variations on a style. I'll just add real quick that the IPA is the number one selling style of quote unquote craft beer, and almost half of all craft beer sold is IPA. We found ourselves in a bit of a, a dilemma. We 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 contracted our hops back in 2012, a year before we opened. I signed a contract. 
that was looked like a luxury car when I signed the contract for Hops. We didn't even we didn't even know for sure if our brewery was going to be open, and I had already agreed to purchase a pretty nice Audi uh, <laughs> worth of hops. And what's funny is we've blown through most of it. And um, looking f- to the future, um, you know, we, we, we go to look at, say, Mosaic, and I call uh, Yakima Chief, and they say, well, we can, we can contract you in 2021 for Mosaic. I say, well, you know, Mosaic's not going to be that exciting in 2021. And they go, well, sure it will. It's the hot thing. And I said, it's the hot thing today, and it was a hot thing yesterday. It's not going to be a hot thing tomorrow. You watch. It's going to be the experimental whatever number they've assigned to it this week, hop. So what we've done about that is, is something we had intended to do all along, and that's brew classic style as well. We, we have a Munich Hellas on draft that wowed people at the summit because they said, holy cow, who's brewing a Munich Hellas? This Hellas is fantastic. We call it in the afterglow. We should call it nothing to hide behind. Because I assure you, you throw down a double IPA, you can cover a lot of sins with a, with a 9% 132 IBU double IPA. But I challenge any home brewer here to do a 15 IBU Munich Hellas and make a mistake and see if the, we don't find it. Or a Bud Light. Well, and we get a lot of people that come into our tap room and try to say, well, I'm, I've just discovered this, you know, the local beer and blah, 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 and, and it's so much better than this garbage that they make over in Fairfield called Budweiser. And I say, wait a minute, hold that thought for a minute. Those guys can brew circles around me. They've got all the technology and all the money and all the equipment and all the, all the uh, facilities to make fabulous, consistent beer. It may not be the same beer, but it's the same every time, and it's guaranteed it's not infected, which is certainly more than I can say for a lot of beer I've tried. I think what people, when they say IPA, what they're saying is we want a flavorful beer. And uh, a little more alcohol than a Bud Light and flavorful. And I, so I think that's, that's uh, probably the workhorse of California for a long time. There will definitely be other styles that kind of are on the perimeter of it, but you know, we, we didn't start with an IPA, and then we kind of did one later on, and we found that um, people wanted to, wanted to drink it. And I think, uh, and, and I don't think it's because they're, they're thinking they want that IPA. I think what they're saying is, I just want something that's flavorful and a little alcohol. I don't want, I, I want, I'm going to drink two beers, so, and I want them both to be good. I think it's important we, we, we do bear in mind this matter of alcohol. And again, coming back to my heritage, you've you got to remember that in the UK they pay tax on the basis of alcoholic strength. So every 0.1% alcohol means more tax. So there's a lot of really very flavoursome beers, very well-balanced beers, very good beers, that are only 3.54% alcohol. And I really think there's tremendous scope in that area for this country as well. Okay, step up to the mic. A little tall. Okay, hi. I'm just curious um, how local breweries are using sustainability in their business. So we use that word a lot. Um, People ask us on our hop farm if we're organic, and I say no, because um, in order for us to be around in a couple years, we have to make sure that we do have a crop 
and so hops are very susceptible to mites and mildew. Where we're located, we get a lot of wind at night. We get the nice delta breeze, so we're not very susceptible to uh, mildew, but we are always susceptible to mites. So we don't go organic because we always want to reserve the right to make sure that we actually have a crop at the end of the year, thus sustainable from an economic perspective. But um, what we've learned actually is that if we, main, we maintain the pH and the quality of the, the balance of soil, back to kind of what Charlie said, balance the, cho the, the, the chemistry of the soil that the hops are stronger and we don't actually need to do anything that is inorganic to prevent mites. But sustainable, I think, is the, it's a great word. Uh, it looks like a big circle, and I think it should, um, but it's complicated. And I hope no one decides to be the sustainable board of California and make us sign a bunch of paperwork because then I'll stop doing it. But the reality is that I think it's more of a spirit. And I think, uh, you know, it's how you take, care, take out the trash and things like that. And I can tell you all the... All my teammates, I mean, whenever we, I, whenever I throw a piece of paper in the wrong trash can, they jump all over me. So we try to do it at the smallest and the largest level. Um, and I'll just add that that spirit really is part of our DNA. It's just the makeup of who we are as brewers. The people that tend to start breweries as companies just naturally seem to have a real concern about sustainability in general and there's some amazing stories around that in our industry that I love to show off at the state capitol. Sierra Nevada, Stone Brewing Company, Lagunitas are um, amazing stories around sustainability. Um, some of the largest solar arrays in the state are at breweries um, and you know we get asked about water use a lot. We're not a big water user the entire craft brewing industry in California uses the same amount of water as a 640-acre almond orchard. So we don't use a lot of water, but we work really hard at reusing and, and conserving water. So generally, I'm really, really proud of our industry in terms of uh, sustainability and, and everything that is around that. We, we can't purchase malted barley from somebody down the street. It just doesn't work that way. And we get our malted barley that comes out of the, uh, the Midwest. Um, I know, I know JE's used a lot of California-grown malts, which is great. It's fantastic. What is it called? California Gold? Is that the California Select? So, so I, I know they've done a really good job with that. We, we, we've opted for uh, RAR malting uh, as our base malt, uh, which, which a lot of it comes out of Alberta, Canada. A lot of it comes out of the, uh, the Midwest. But... The way we sustain our community is we provide a great place for people who live and work in our area to come in and spend money and have time to um, enjoy themselves. Their money goes into our brewery, which makes more beer for them to drink. That, you know, little bits of that money go to pay our employees, and then our employees go and they spend money in our community. And around and around we go. And we spend money in our community and we make money in our community and uh, we donate thousands and thousands of dollars of beer every year to fundraising events, to charities, to beer festivals, everything we pour. Anytime you go to a beer fest, anytime beer is poured, including right here, right now, the beer is donated by the brewery. 
And believe me, the margins aren't as good as they, as they may appear. Um, some of the larger, more affluent breweries might lead you to believe that it's far more lucrative than it is. I assure you, every single one of these breweries here would be perfectly happy to sell that beer for a profit. But we love to donate our beers for good causes. And I, for one, appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Um, hi. My question is, when you guys were first starting out as small businesses, who was your mentor and what would you say would be the number one lesson that they taught you? Jamil Zanishev. Seconded. Um, who is that? Jamil Zanishev um, is the owner and head brewer for Heretic in Fairfield. Um, he's still like my big brother. And um, the number one thing he told me was, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so I learned a lot from him, and I still continue to learn a lot from him. And he has a fermenter named Charlie. And another one called Bamforth, actually. <laughs> uh, Charlie was one of our mentors. And uh, we actually had a Martzen over lunch several times to talk. Uh, you know, I think when you're starting a business, it's good to get a lot of different uh, data points, talk to a lot of people. And um, no one's ever right. No one ever has the perfect... Uh, perspective, but you put them all together and, and you kind of find a map that works for you. And Charlie was a big part of, of ours. And that's, he's really, you know, Tom and Charlie, no one buys their beer, but uh, they're huge resources for this region. I mean, these guys are giants. And uh, they both talk to people that, um, you know, are, you know, <laughs> are on, on lists. And, uh, that's the level of expertise and perspective, really, that they have. And, you know, to have that here is, is it, we're really lucky to have, and there's a lot of people like that. Um, and the great thing, the, the best part of it is they're a phone call away. I mean, Vanessa can probably, I don't know how hard it was to get these two guys here, but, um, you know, they're, they got nothing to sell. They're not donating a beer. They're not building a brand. They're here to serve, and they have a heart of gold, and they just want to pour it out, and we're really lucky for that. I'll have to make a call out to uh, my mentor, who is Fritz Maytag, who is the, the grandfather of the craft brewing industry. This comes from the Maytag appliance family, and he bought a little brewery that was about to go out of business in San Francisco in 1965 called Anchor Brewing Company and transformed that little brewery into uh, brewing traditional, authentic styles of beer, Anchor Steam, obviously, and and soon many others. And uh, when I got into the business, it was early on. No one had ever heard of microbrewery. Uh, no one had ever heard of these beers or tried them. And uh, everyone told me that I was crazy. And um, Fritz was someone who, really the only person uh, that gave me hope and said, yeah, you can do it. You can keep going. You, 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 can, you can do it. Just keep plugging away at it. He was the only, really the only person, uh, maybe some of the other few breweries, brewers at the time, but they were all floundering as well. And um, so he was the one person. I, I, I don't think I'd be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for Fritz Maytag. And I think he's been a mentor for many, many people, including Ken Grossman and 
and many others in the industries. And um, we were honored to have him speak at the California Craft Beer Summit just this last week, which was really an honor for me. And I think for us, um, I definitely agree that Jamil Zanichev, through the Brewing Network and Brew Strong and Brewing with Style, and if you're a home brewer, you really must check out the podcast. It's a wealth of information. Um, also, you know, for us, other brewers have been wonderful mentors, especially Ryan Aikens down at Tappet in San Luis Obispo. Amazing resource for information. Um, I think I, I have heard on occasion that um, brewing is a, um, an industry where it's 99% asshole free. And I can, I can tell you from our experience, we've asked a lot of questions, we've asked for a lot of help, and people have been so forthcoming with information and help. It's been amazing. So I, uh, I hope I can pass that along one day. That was a really good question. So I, I have two burning questions that I'll ask, and then unless there's any more questions, we can wrap it up and have more beer. But the first one was getting back to what J.E. was saying about California being the biggest hops producer in the country, if not the world, uh, from gold rush to prohibition, if I'm correct. Um, and then just hearing how you have to contract out so long for hops that it seems like there's demand. Um, and us being, you know, farm to fork, is there a market for hops? Are people growing hops locally? Uh, is that something that you would like to see more of? Is that happening? What's, could we be another big producer of hops again? Uh, the answer is yes, but you've got to remember that hops are, are not an easy crop. Uh, they're very prone to um, uh, contamination, infection. Um, and unless you're going to use them fresh, they've got to be dried. And so there's a lot of uh, expense, there's quite an infrastructure involved in it. So it is not a crop to go into lightly. So you can, it's easier to ship it from Washington, Midwest, instead of having it brought you know, from a few uh, miles down the road? I'm not saying it's necessarily easier, but if you are going to grow hops and you're going to go into the hop business, then there is a significant investment in it if you're going to be able to produce enough hops to satisfy uh, a significant market. Um, and they are a crop that when you harvest them, they're what, 70, 75% moisture. And unless you're gonna use them fresh, then you've got to dry them. And is there, a, is there a bigger interest from farmers current or thinking, oh, maybe hops is a crop that I could, are you seeing more? Yeah, I got a lot of inquiries. And, um, um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, prospect, but it, it is not an easy crop. I've had innumerable hop farmers come into my brewery and say, you know, I've got these orchards and I've got some land. I want to start doing some hops. Would you buy them from me? And I say, are you also going to purchase a pelletizer? And they go, what's a pelletizer? I said, well, talk to me and you know what that is. Because if you can't, if you can't dry them and pelletize them for storage, you're done. And, and, and sadly, that's far more expensive and, and probably more difficult than just growing them. There's also a, a new crop. And I still live in the hippie town of Nevada City, which is uh, a big grow area. And, you know, there was a time where I tried to convince all the 
cannabis growers, you know, if you're tired of looking over your head and getting paranoid every time a helicopter flies over, you you could grow hops instead because it's it's very similar. It's it's well, it's related to to marijuana and. They said, "Oh, that's pretty cool. What so so? You know, how, what do you get for 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 hops?" And I told them the price, and they just looked at me and said, "Are you freaking kidding me? Not not you're not even close." So, um, but marijuana will be legalized here in California for recreational use, almost certainly um, this year, and if not, soon to come. And there's going to be just a huge land rush on that. It's so, and the price difference will eventually maybe come close to close to each other but right now that's uh, i don't see hops as being a big crop in, in california a little bit but not a big crop in california in the near future so we get asked this a lot so i got two i could talk about this for an hour but two comments number one um california grows the highest blank in the world so we're we're not a commodity grower we're a quality grower so we can't compete when when a when a, a crop or a, a thing becomes a commodity we don't compete very well because the cost of labor water resources etc land is too high so that's the first thing so the second thing is is that um the reason the hop industry moved out of the state was not because of quality it was because of economics so bud Coors, and miller realized there were two inventions that could allow them to nominate from a business perspective the the u.s beer market one was the interstate eisenhower interstate system so if they could buy more trucks they could dom ship their beer quickly all over the world all over the state the country and the second one was communication or education it was called super bowls so um, the advent of the television. So what they did is they went, you know, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but they basically went to all their suppliers and said, listen, if you can save us a buck or two here or there, then we can buy more Super Bowl ads and buy more trucks and grow. And so the hop industry said, hey, yeah, we can go to eastern Washington state where there's plenty of water and we can grow just enough quality hops for you to make your Bud Light and we can lower the cost by X. And so that's what happened. So the industry in whole in the 60s and 70s moved out of California and moved up to eastern Washington state. And so, and it became in essence a, a commodity. And so, again, California does not grow quality, commodity well, we grow quality. And so there, this is the, um, the next step. And this was kind of the, for us, what, what we're trying to communicate at the farm, and it's going to take a long time. It may take forever, and we may not succeed, but um, is to try to show that there is actually terroir when it comes to hops. So, let's third thing: you walk into your local grocery store and you want you want local wine. Well, that's where the grapes are grown, not crushed. And local cheese is where the goats grazed. It's not where their milk was processed. Local peaches, it's where they're picked, not packed. But local beer is where the factory's located. It's not where the, the hops, the barley, anything's grown. And so there's a mindset that in the brewing world, the reason um, the ingredients aren't so highlighted is because we, because beer comes from the German and the English cultures, consistency is a very important thing. And so the only way, I mean, how do you make a great burger all over the world from meat from different you know, animals eating different things, you 
you put a lot of sauce on it and the meat's not so important. It's called a Big Mac. So it's the McDonaldization of the burger. So the ingredients are important, but they're not highlighted. And they, what's in, instead rewarded or uh, kind of celebrated is consistency. And this is where I, Charlie walked away because he's, you know, this is, this is where he and I clash because he's a scientist and Anheuser-Busch has, has him there to kind of, how do you make a Bud, a Bud, 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 Bud Light consistent all over the world? And he has an incredible palate, palate. He won't say this, but he can tell, you put 27 Bud Lights in front of him, he can tell which factory they're, or which brewery they're made all over the world. That's how sensitive his palate is. And so he tries to use science to make those consistent because that's what we expect. Budweiser's lost their touch. If the Budweiser you had in Prague next year tastes different than the one you had at the arena in October, right? So this is the educational component. And this is why hops will not come back to California is because still the expectation of the consumer, both the craft and you know the mass market beer consumer, is that a good brewer is consistent. And there's no, it's very difficult to be consistent with ingredients that vary all over the place. And when you have a lot of hop, little, little farmers, like what we're going to have in, in California for a long time, you know, we don't have the, the resources or the, the expertise to kind of drive those hops to be consistent. The other thing is we don't have a thousand acre farm where we can blend all the cascade together and, you know, make it kind of quote, quote unquote uniform. So there's a lot of challenges from that perspective. So it's, it's a, you know, it's, but you know what? There was a guy that that walked up the Silverado Trail and told the farmer to pull out his plum trees and move his cattle to Carneros and plant Cabernet. And you know, after you know five or six generations, they made a Cabernet that that rocked the world. And so, um, there's the, the the reality is the potential. Undeniably, is that we, Sacramento, are the Napa Valley of hops, and it's proven because prior to prohibition. There were 2,000 breweries in, California, in the United States, and those 2,000 breweries didn't have Super Bowl ads and didn't have trucks to dominate the market. So how did they compete? They competed on quality. How did they, how did they make better beer than the guy next door? They used better ingredients. Where did they get them from? Here. Hi there. Um, your statement actually echoes the irony that Hopland these days is mostly propagated by wine vineyards. That too, but I wasn't going to go there. Um, my question is more pointed towards Professor Bamforth. I took your food science three class when I was at Davis in 2007, and it was my first A at UC Davis. Thank you. Um, but my question, um, I, as a part of your curriculum, you bring in a lot of professionals from the beer industry. So you brought in Fritz Maytag, you brought in Ken Grossman, you brought in some other local folks. I was wondering if your curriculum guests have changed at all given how spiked the popularity of the beer in the area has become. And if your message has changed at all in that class. Um, well, the first thing to say is I, d I don't teach that class anymore, um, although I am putting it online, so anybody can take it. Uh, but um, no, I think the, the, the nature of the guests is, is unchanged. What we try to do is, is to, to um, 
present the fact that the brewing industry is, is diverse. There remain some very, very big brewers, and they have a certain way of doing things. And there remain um, big, smaller brewers like Sierra Nevada, who do things superbly well. And I would argue they are the best brewing company in the world. Uh, with all due deference to the people who are sitting alongside me here today. But, you know, I've been in the industry for nearly 40 years, and Ken Grossman is number one. Um, um, but equally, there are small, smaller brewing companies who do things their way, and they've all got different challenges. Uh, they've all got the same ultimate ambition, but they've all got the same uh, challenges. So I make no apology to, to present all shades of opinion to, to the students. I think that's very, very important. Um, earlier on, you know, I think Tom pointed to the fight. There, there are, you know, some pretty gruesome business practices that are perpetrated by the big guys. Uh, not least of which there's one company that will make you wait 180 days to get paid uh, if you supply to them. And I think that is absolutely appalling. Um, but nonetheless, to hear uh, about how they do things and how they balance their priorities and what they're doing in the world of environmental issues and so on, I think is very, very important. So, so no, the, the basic shape of the invitees is the same, although it's somebody else's responsibility now to invite them. Um, but, um, you know, it did become the most popular class on campus, and it did push the class on sex into second place. So we must have been doing something right. Uh, okay, so last question. Um, I guess, what is it, uh, InBev and SAB Miller. Correct, yeah. Okay, so I was gonna, I was, inter um, I had asked Tony McGee of Lagunitis to come and be a panelist, and he was interested, be but he is out of town going to, Germ I think Germany, I guess he's expansion, so basically Lagunitis, if I'm saying Lagunitas. correctly. Lagunitas. Lagunitas. Um, sold 50%, has, uh, of the company to Heineken. And if I remember correctly, you know, he wants to expand and this is the way to do it. I'm wondering if you, well, maybe you won't tell me, but is there interest by the big brewers in Sacramento, um, if not, uh, you know, partnering or buying? And if you got a call hypothetically would you do like Lagunitis, you know, sell 50% because you're thinking, yeah, you know, I could go big. Would you want to do like Sierra Nevada, you know, stay, you know, solo, but go big on your own or small local craft? That's where I'm happy at. That's where my customers are happy at. What, what do you, what do you, what would you do? What do you think? What are you hearing? Well, the first thing I would do is check the calendar and make sure it wasn't April 1st, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I think the only road to take would be this year in Nevada route, but that's very pretentious to even speak of that because they are Sierra Nevada. You know, we, we have our plans. We aim for expansion. We want to go big, but, you know, I'm not going to say we're going to be the next Sierra Nevada. That's ridiculous. So I, uh, you know, we we want to be very successful, and we'll be successful in our own, or in our own way. We're not. I I don't think we will ever be sitting by the phone waiting for a call from the big guys. Um, 
And if we got one, I... Not I tempted? Know. No. I get asked this question a lot. Oh, I can't believe so-and-so just sold. And, oh, I just heard that uh, Coors bought so-and-so. And, oh, but, you know, I don't like them anymore, blah, blah, blah. Ken, you'd never do that. You, you'd never sell out. And I, I always go, eh, it depends on how big the offer was, really. I mean, at the end of the day, um, no, I wouldn't really want to. But, you know, somebody offered me an early retirement. I don't know if anyone here would turn it down, you know. Um, I'd probably sleep a lot better. Um, if someone told me, here, here's the roadmap to getting there totally independent, I would probably follow that roadmap to the letter. Um, but there is no roadmap. It doesn't exist. So I don't know. It's a hard call. I certainly don't judge any, any uh, brewery owner or owners for uh, giving up any ownership in their businesses. Uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, if a big enough carrot's dangled in front of you, you might go ahead and snatch it up. So I apologize to any of you that think that's terrible, but it's just it's the reality. Yeah, I call that winning the lottery and don't plan on it. Um, the reality is that it's, uh, it's, this is a tough business, and it's tough to be outstanding. It's tough, tough to be unique, and um, just put your head down and work. And, uh, but, you know, if you do that for 30 years, I think you probably would entertain that a little differently than when you're only into it for less than 10. So uh, none of us, I think, have that we don't, we haven't lost enough sleep, or I've gotten a lot more gray hairs, but, uh, you know, again, it's a lottery. It's hard to plan for it. You don't plan for it. I think there's nothing new in, nothing new in it. You know, I was very proud to work for the Bass Brewing Company. Everybody says, well, Bass, what a marvelous English brewing company. Bass grew to the size it was because of acquiring lots and lots of smaller brewing companies and progressively small, uh, shutting down these small breweries and assimilating the brands. There's nothing new in it. It, 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 it is ever thus. Um, and again, I, I say again that uh, you know, it, it's, it's not the end of the world. The, the, on the, from the technical perspective, I think Lagunitas will certainly not suffer from having a technical association with the Heineken company. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of beer in green glass bottles, but that doesn't mean that Heineken uh, don't know about how to do things well and systems and uh, approaches and ways of, of ensuring uh, that things happen in the correct way. So there are very good technical reasons why a company should uh, think seriously about it, quite apart from the fact that, yeah, there's some big money involved. And I think... I think anybody would be disingenuous to say that at the end of the day, if the check was big enough, they would say no. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. Thank you guys for braving forest brush fire and overturn rig. And thank you guys for coming. And I don't know when we're being kicked out, but there's still more beer if you'd like to have some in Roaming Spoons. So thanks again. And thank you guys.